Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with, uh, gee, a couple of people. How long have we been talking, Mary and Gary? A long time. About a year, since maybe before COVID hit. Yeah, I think think that's right. Yeah. So here we are. uh, I'm really happy to have you. And these these guys, uh, in my mind, you really emblemize what... Ramdas was all about in relation to most especially to do what we need to do. This is everybody. I'm, it's, it's, it's around this whole podcast will be around what is going on in with the environment and what is going on ecologically, what is going inside us and our relationship to it and to each other. Uh, and which is why I really love what you're, what you're doing in your work, because it's about straightening. If we can't get uh, into a transformation of the polarization and separation that's in each one of us, and that is how we relate to other people and the environment, we, it, it's problematic. So, yes. yeah. So it's been, yes. yeah, really great. Um, so uh, these guys put together a book called Full Ecology. And, uh, and I think I just described the way in which it is not, it is all interconnected with who we are as people, how we act, what perspective we come from, uh, what uh, connection to both the mystery and the um, interconnectivity of absolutely everything. So that yeah. kind of yeah. says that something. Itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, first of all, it's so, so the, the listeners know who's speaking. I'm Mary and this is Gary. Yes. And that's a little <laughs> that, bit cute. It was almost a deal breaker, mm. the little rhyme thing, but we liked each other so much <laughs> that we got over it. <laughs> we have different last names, so that works pretty well. Uh, yeah. Right, but right, yeah. Right. Um, Raghu, it's so great to be here with you. And uh, I am just so grateful for how many people, and I think that COVID is really accelerating this, are opening to, mm, to, to the different ways that we have for being reminded of the truth of who we are. All we need to do is look outside the window, take a walk, be outside, and we'll talk more about that. Gary and I met about eight, eight years, years ago. ago. Yes, yes, indeed, we did. Um, not to uh, go into the entire story, but Mary was living in Portland and I was in a little town called Red Lodge, Montana, playing blues harp in a band. Uh, and the leader of the band was a great guitar player who happened to have gone to college down in Texas with Mary. And I didn't know anything about Mary. He just said one night, uh, hey, I'm having an old buddy over for pizza. Can you can you come over and, and join in the conversation? And, and, and Mary was the buddy, basically. Yeah, I had driven from Portland on spring break because Portland, Regu, you may know, in spring is like one of the wettest, most dreary. <laughs> I mean, really. I know and of so, it, yes. Oh, I was on spring break and uh, from my work as a professor, and I could not imagine staying in the house. And so I called my friend who had I'd promised for 30 years that I'd come meet his family. I called him in Montana. I said, I'm coming. Mm. But I woke up that morning late and I thought, oh, Joe will understand. I feel a little depressed. I'll come another time. But I got in the car anyway. And I drove out there and met Gary. And and, and we just started talking almost immediately. I, I with a, a long background in conservation and uh, environmental science writing, uh, experiencing the, the wilderness to the tune of almost 35,000 miles on trail, and Mary with a really esteemed career as a social scientist. And as I talked about what excited me in the natural world, and Mary talked about what excited her in the human world, we truly came to understand the level of connection, the fact that we are nature and that the qualities that inform the natural world and allow it to not just survive, but thrive are the same qualities in us. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it isn't a matter of inventing something. It's a matter of, of reclaiming. And it's not like it's news. It's not mm-hmm. news. This has always been so. But we have gotten to this position in this country where we either uh, see ourselves as heroic 
uh, advocates for the natural world that is outside of us, or captains of industry that are going to exploit the natural world. You know, so, so this whole orientation of separation is a problem. And the fact is, we can love the natural world all we want, but if we're messed up in our relationships or in the way we are with ourselves, as you were saying earlier, hmm. then we're not going to be very yeah. effective in what we want to steward. Yeah. Um, you know, who did I see recently? Um, there was a program that they were interviewing um, Bill Gates. And you know how much he's been involved. I mean, to him now that this is the thing that he's working on. And, you know, he, he talked about the untold amounts of money he was losing and trying to get startups to actually get something that could be executed in the real world and all of that. And started talking about, uh, you know, other sources of energy and all the usual stuff that uh, we see all the time. What struck in terms of wind power and solar power and all of it and getting out of uh, fossil fuel. And but what struck me was he. Uh, it got into just how much integrate, how well integrated rather uh, fossil fuels are for the most um intricate parts of our physical lives like in buildings just yeah. think of what's in these buildings and mm -hmm. what comes from fossil fuels so the level of uh it's extraordinary and you know and he's admitting it's the turning of that at this point that is so embedded in everything is a daunting daunting mm -hmm. uh, factor yeah. So, uh, how do you? Uh, what do you? What do you think about something like that? And I know we're talking in this. We, you, are talking in this book so much of doing the kind of work on ourselves that allow us to even think properly or make a, some a, a move that's going to have a repercussion that's positive. Whatever you know. Yeah. Well, first of all, I I couldn't agree more with the the how integrated fossil fuels are in our clothing, even in our food to a, a remarkable yeah. degree. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, the challenge is daunting, but one of the things that I think we're not lacking is technological imagination. We perhaps need a lot more funding and a lot more commitment, but some of that commitment uh, comes from us changing our outlook and our ability to look at the world uh, around us and not just save the world for our own benefits so we'll be healthier and happier, but actually to integrate that world and realize that there's a kind of kinship there and, and, and start start examining and exploring how interconnected we really are with that world. And, and that's a source of nourishment and that's a source of energy and that's a source of resilience that will, I, I think, help drive the, the more technological and political processes that, that, that have to happen. Mm. Yeah. The, the tricky bit is for us to switch and this has to happen internally. We all know this from from the experience of spiritual inquiry, that there are these ways that we can think it. And that's cool. We can even say it. And that's cool. But there's not much integration into the way we are. And so part of what we're bringing forward in full ecology, really, Rego, I remember in early conversations over email mm. that there was this um you and Duncan, I think, had been talking a lot about um, what about all these folks who get, take one listen to anything we say and they go, oh, hooey, woo woo. Yeah. We're not going to have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. And so full ecology can easily be responded to that way, too, but not probably as quickly because everybody loves the natural world. And you come in through that doorway and you invite people to think of the the sweetness that they feel in the natural world, even the passion they then can remember for being outdoors, for being the outdoors where the boundaries start disappearing. Then you have a way in to this feeling that we all carry all the time, which is this almost impossible to articulate feeling of belonging, feeling of connection. 
And so full ecology is an invitation back into making our decisions, writing our policies from a point of connection of that deep kinship. And it's way more than just thinking it. We got to reclaim it, find it back inside of us. It's, an, it's never gone anywhere. It's there. But that's part of the challenge. So in these conversations like Gates brings forward, it becomes this feeling, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to shut everything down because we can't do any more petroleum. Well, that's not really so. If we way come down on our use of petroleum in transportation, for example, then the rapidity with which we go through our stores is cut way back. And some of the other deep dependencies that we have on that resource can be uh, shifted more slowly. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that has been said. And then they, people who speak what I would call rash, rationally and good thinking, right thinking, right? The Buddhist Eightfold Path, right mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. They are all saying this is not a matter of dropping everything and and going forward with uh, with uh, a replacement. It's it's a matter of how we integrate it all, so that it has a, 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 the kind of effect that starts to make changes. Um, but it's the consciousness that we're really talking about. That's the most interesting part for me. Uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, I'm actually, Gary, I'd love to hear, you know, tell us something of being in your own experience of being in the uh, in nature in the way that you have been. And that points to the you, you just absolutely are uh, unable to to do anything but honor it in every possible way. And it starts and turning your own life inward. You know, I, I think one of the best lines that captures for me the, that appeal and that draw to nature, and, and I think it, it's probably universal. It, it is such a power in so many people. came from Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, that power which sees through our eyes when we go out into nature is seeing the power in the spectacle itself. That power that sees through our eyes is seeing the power in nature. So there's a kind of recognition there. Now that's the that's the far end of ooh, that's pretty woo-woo and that's pretty philosophical. But but right now there is so much of an explosion of biological and ecological research showing that the porous and interdependent aspects of, of who we are, are are just far greater than we ever thought. Um, I may have mentioned the last time we talked that now we know that if if you or I go out and walk on a trail or under a tree in the park or in front of our house, the tree is giving off oxygen. Yes. And we breathe that in. We give off carbon dioxide. The tree uses that for energy production. But now we know the tree is giving off phytoncides, which are chemicals that with every breath fortify our immune system and strengthen our vital organs. So the, 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 the more I go down the trail, the more I know not only my intuitive draw to the natural world, but I also am seeing that storytelling system that we call science kind of catching up to what a lot of indigenous uh, and, and wise people have known for a very, very long time. One last thing I wanted to say, there's this great a line that you and I talk about quite a bit from Elaine Scarry, who's an aesthetics professor at Harvard. And she said, there's a lot of things in life that give us bliss and a lot that make us feel marginalized. And she said, the beauty of nature, uh, nature's beauty in particular is astonishing because it does both. It makes us feel marginalized and it brings us bliss. So it's like we go into the, instead of the center of the stage where it's the me story and the spotlights on me, nature somehow moves us to the edge of the stage. So we're, we're still there. We're still, we're still connected, but we don't have that need to be the center of the story. She said it makes us actually happy to be marginalized in that way, to be right-sized mm. by the power of what we're sensing and seeing in that world. Mm. That's uh, very good. Very good. And one of the things that Gary does, he's so uh, humble, <laughs> He does it. You asked him to tell a story and he goes right to Ralph Waldo Emerson or yes. something. So one of the ways that maybe this works, I've heard you talk about encountering grizzlies. 
and not becoming horrified and into an opposition kind of position, but different. Tell a grizzly story. Tell a grizzly story. (laughs) We have to turn down the lights. It'll be a late night. If you're listening, if you're listening to this late at night as a sort of way to go to sleep, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Good luck on the dreams tonight because it's. um, I've seen many grizzlies from all the miles that I've spent. Uh, solo, mostly in in the backcountry of Yellowstone, and happily, most of them have been at a distance. A couple of them have been within thirty or forty yards, but I've never had any problems. But certainly, as you can imagine, when you first see uh, an animal of that stature and that power um, and unpredictability, um, early on in my exposure, I would say that the the over the, the fear would be somewhat overwhelming. It didn't mean I would run when you're not supposed to run, but I would be consumed by it. Now um, there's there's I'm the beneficiary of the power of the present moment because the more you are in the natural world, I think the more you can cultivate that ability to be in the present moment, which we talk about for all sorts of spiritual disciplines. And so when you see a grizzly and you're familiar with nature, there is an intensification of that present moment. Sure, there's a little bit of, you know, heart ah, heart is beating say. faster and whatnot. <laughs> but there's there what what rises in that moment of intense present moment awareness is improvisational ability. I think we have all of us, these innate deep skills to improvise no matter what happens. And this is true in in social situations as well. It comes from just trusting our instincts, knowing that in this particular moment, given what's going on at, at this exact second, we are wired. Nature has wired us much as the rest of nature is wired to respond in a correct way. Now, that doesn't eliminate all the danger altogether, but there's a, almost a peace uh, with that level of, of focus and that level of present moment awareness, as odd as that sounds. Well, I mean, uh, you hear of saints everywhere, stories from the past of being with uh, animals in a way that they had total trust and they would just, I mean, uh, Ramana Maharshi is what gets called to mind. He had this cow he loved, and that cow loved him so much and would come to to the hall when he, people were gathering to have uh, be in the presence of Darshan of uh, Ramana Maharshi. And they would feed the cow, and even if he pooped, they'd clean it, you know, which never happens in any Indian temple, let me tell you. So the the respect and honoring that this being who who was beyond polarity for sure uh, is is extraordinary i mean those stories are just fantastic so but yeah. you yeah. know in in the book this is something i think would be great for people to hear um there's that part i think it was in yellowstone was it in yellowstone where they they took out all of the wolves Yes. yes. Okay. Yes, that's so right. that's a so that story of what happened with balance, which this is really around balance. Would mm-hmm. you tell that? Sure. And speaking of wolves, let me drag them into the last conversation we were just having. Uh, when I watch wolves and elk, um, the, the elk that are in the presence of wolves don't necessarily react at all because most of the time wolves are just there; they're not hunting. And there's a very significant exchange visually and sometimes audibly that let the elk know whenever the hunt's on. If the hunt's not on, the elk can consider the wolves Mm. and just relax. And and so they're only reacting back to me and the grizzly. They're only reacting by running for their lives when there's clear evidence that that's the proper thing to do in this particular moment. Um, the wolves were uh, eradicated in Yellowstone back in 1926. Um, in fact, the last pack that I'm aware of, the, the alpha male and female were shot in the Lamar Valley. The pups were taken out of the den. They were put on display down in Gardner in a cage for about a week. And then they were put in a burlap sack and drowned in the Gardner River. And there was this notion we were certain, we Western scientific minds were certain that predators were bad. And the more we set ourselves to killing them off, the better it would be for the 
the animals we liked, the elk and the deer. Uh, the, the Catholic Church back in the Middle Ages called them sweet beasts and stenchy beasts. The sweet beasts were the, the goodies and uh, the good good animals and, and the stenchy beasts were, were predators. And what happened uh, after the wolves were gone is a, a, a very profound change and not for the good in the ecosystem. The elk populations swelled to um, unnatural levels, which meant the gray uh, graze was being uh, eliminated. The, the riparian plants like willow were pretty much wiped out. And so when the wolves were reintroduced in 1995 and 96, one of the first things that we saw was the fact that the elk, they wanted to be able to keep an eye on these these new creatures. They had, they had an instinct that these were not safe. And so they started moving more. And that meant they were moving off those riparian areas instead of hanging out by the river all summer long and, and mm-hmm. raising them down. <laughs> well, as soon as they started moving, here come the willow. With a willow, here come the beaver. The beaver make ponds. That creates habitat for yellow warblers and other birds to come back. So the whole face of Yellowstone today is changed just in the wow. you know, 25, 30 yeah. years of wolves having been back. Right. Uh, already the beaver had taken off and the the birds had taken off um, because the elk had eaten down their natural habitat. So, you know, that's that's yeah. it's quite the story. Um, how so do, the, how, I'm just sorry. Uh, it just occurs to me. How do you translate that to us humans? OK, needing that kind of opposition so that we have an opportunity suffering you know i'm reminded by ramdas suffering All right is and disruption i know look at <laughs> we go dang i remember a very wise person saying once um your life is always giving you the perfect curriculum yeah Right. Which is so true and yeah. so annoying. So, yeah. Guess, so, yeah. What do we right. say about that? And what? Uh, just think of the elk. Hang on a second. I just lost my earpiece. Just think of the elk. Well, so that they're got, we have, the, the wolves are gone. I'm setting a scenario. They're gone. You right, know, we're right, right in the middle of it. Right. They're just going to hang out by that wonderful body of water, this incredible food. There's no fear. Uh, yeah. And we have we not done the same kind of thing as humans? Right. And isn't it interesting that we contrive then those kind of transient feelings by watching um, adventure films or horror movies or we get ourselves into this activated state? And, and then the other thing that we do is try to eliminate everything that we can't control. And so... Then we get into this battle with real life instead of being in the right sized position that understands by now. But I'm telling you, 12 year olds understand by the time they're 12, good things and bad things happen. It's not all easy. One of the ways that we keep going forward is by encountering and working well with what doesn't go well. If I am on my skateboard and I hit something and fall off, I got to figure that out. So we have these natural circumstances in human experience too. And if we're outdoors in grizzly country, there's a good example. And you know exactly, Raghu, what wants many people are wanting to happen with the grizzly is to take them off the endangered list and make it so they can be hunted. Yeah. You know, so that's one of the ways that we mess with ourselves um, in terms of the ecological balance that sustains every one of us. Tell a a little bit about um, the the notion psychology of the disruption of the embeddedness environment. Not that this makes tough stuff easy, but. Well, we know that evolution has occurred because there's this biological imperative to keep restructuring and perfecting and changing and advancing. And you can look at an individual life and see that that's what we humans are doing inside ourselves as well. And so if you've got um, a baby, Well, this is where the separation myth comes from. You've got a baby, and Raghu, I I don't think we've talked to you about this, but it might be new to your listeners. You've got a baby, and you're playing with that baby with a rattle. 
And say the baby's four month old, months old, and that baby just looks at the rattle and loves it and smiles and you are doing your goofy adult human tricks because they're smiling. Mm-hmm. And then you hide the rattle because you think that'll make them giggle. And they like out of sight, out of mind. They're just not interested looking around for the next thing. And that's because it takes until babies are about six or seven, eight months old before they have this capacity cognitively to understand that the rattle's still there. So one day later on, you're doing that. You can do this with peekaboo too. And you hide the rattle and the baby goes, I think that rattle still exists. And they look around for it. Well, if they knew where they were headed, Raghu, They'd never go there because that's the first little sprout of ego. It's the first sprout of the experience of me separate from all else. Of course, we've got to go through that if we're going to get to any sense of what grownups tend to call enlightenment. We must go through this wild experience of being an individual separate from all. However, most humans and most human communities don't get beyond that illusion and orchestrating everything around that really scary belief that I'm separate from everything else. And of course, being wrapped in this skin, it feels like I am. But that's an invitation that saints and sages have made before. And we put into the language, Gary and I, check and see. Just check. Do you end where your skin ends? Maybe, maybe not. You check it out. So, well, so Buddha I'm did say sorry. that a, a little bit. Buddha, he did say, yeah, check somebody. it out. <laughs> I knew it was somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Gary. Well, I was just thinking that an evolutionary biologist, increasingly, that that group of, of of scholars says that, well, evolution really was a matter of big disruptions happening and then different communities of life forms figuring out how to handle those big disruptions, that the, the disruptions themselves actually prodded the path of evolution. Um, and, I, and I think there's an interesting parallel, uh, and Mary talks about this quite a bit, with, with human beings. Our path is, is prodded sometimes through disruption. And if you only have in your tool belt that separation thinking idea when those disruptions happen, you're not going to be able to handle them very well. And you may entrench the very um, you know, heart of the disruption and not get past it. Actually, it shakes up the separation. That's what happens yeah. with this disruption. And that's why brilliant hearts like Pema Chodron talk about living on the edge. You know, that is exactly where um, we come in most vivid contact with this wild experience of being in a life is right there on the edge. And so what disruption does is to give us the opportunity to move from being to having So that baby moved from being all her sensations and perceptions didn't ever. I mean, she was the one who cried and she was the one who cared for her. It didn't even occur to her that she wasn't everything. And then she realized the rattle was still there. And then you start seeing things like two-year-olds with separation anxiety. You know, they want to control. They know their parents still exist, but then they move from being these abilities to mm. fantasize to having the fantasies and being the ability to collect stuff. This is getting into, you know, develop how we develop mm. cognitively, mm-hmm. but we've got to move from being to having. And so the task right now for human beings and for human cultures is to move from being separate to having the experience of separation then it can become a tool instead of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, disruptions, suffering, endemic in all disruptions. And that's why uh, the thing that Ramdas came back with, uh, suffering brings me joy. And everybody's like, what, are you crazy? <laughs> and, you know, he'd smile and laugh. And then we talk about it a little bit. But really, the explanation around um, the disruption that happened. I mean, the example of the wolves being brought back and then the disruption to the 
those elks, I just keep thinking of that bucolic scene of eating everything they wanted, the sun, it's beautiful, water, everything. That gets disrupted. It's not a bad thing. It is actually a good balanced thing. It allows us to transform. That is what we're really talking about. And I know you talk about it in the book as well. Don't shy away from those kinds of things. Don't shy away from discomfort. Don't shy away from, this is a mystery. We don't know. We do not know what happens with this mortal body. Uh, I mean, we know what happens with the mortal body, what happens with that thing inside that people call different things from soul and otherwise. So the you know, mystery. One, one interesting uh, kind of finish on your fascination with the elk and, and the wolves coming yeah. is right now um, the elk are very much threatened as are other so-called ungulates like deer with chronic wasting disease. Chronic wasting disease can spread through the herd. It's a neur neurological disorder. It's very deadly. And it, one of the first signs of chronic wasting disease is a slight loss of coordination in an animal. Wolves are extremely careful with who they choose to hunt because they're always looking for somebody who might be a little compromised because it's a very dangerous business. Well, chronic wasting disease creates that sort of loss of coordination. They spot it. And so the result is the wolves are, are taking out um, the chronic wasted, uh, wasting disease ridden animals and thereby sparing um, the rest of the herd from you know, dying under that so it's contagious disease. it is very contagious ah uh, 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 well and yeah like something else other, we know about well and the other thing is that that once the wolves were eliminated from Yellowstone and the elk population increased and came down to the waterways talk about unsustainable Mm -hmm. totally unsustainable. So there for a time, it was like, oh, they're all idyllic and unfussed, but their food sources would not continue to be available. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the reintroduction of the wolves was very important. Yeah, true. Absolutely. So here's some good stuff we should talk about. This is from the book. If the brilliance of nature is all around us, and further, if there's similar brilliance in each of us, why doesn't it show up more fully, more clearly as a guiding force? Where has that guidance been as we soldiered forth on countless offensive into productivity, politics, and procreation? Why, with our well-being stuck in the jaws of climate breakdown, is our own natural integrity and ingenuity so hard to see, let alone un to unleash? Why? Okay, this is a good question. Why? <laughs> Look what we've been doing here. Look what we have been. Um, look what we have had in the last four years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about uh, being pushed in, uh, at the every individual. Uh, talk about separation. Talk about all the issues. Every one of them being pushed to the limits. Yes. Uh, you brought the question up, so tell us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways, um, yeah, I'm thinking of a couple things because COVID's pushing us pretty hard with that as well. We all experience the isolation and are not sure that it's uh, a wise thing for us to be socially isolated from one another. It's showing up in, in uh, bad indicators and mental health and, and other things. Um, but one of the things that does come to mind is that the reason we don't is because it's not painful enough. And it's because we continue to be anesthetized essentially in our addiction to the separation myth, our addiction that we can to the, the notion that we can control it all. And so we produce and produce and produce because that way we can control it. That way, probably, although we know we can't, we can at least push death back, if not avoid it altogether. And you know, if we have golden toilets, we can really push death back. You know the illusion? <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's where things get. But the reason that I brought up COVID too, in addition to what we've been dealing with politically, is that um, we have been forced this past four years and we have been forced this past year in COVID to develop skills we haven't even seen ourselves developing because we've had to. 
And we haven't had a chance to take stock of what new skills we have. Here's one new skill. We can say what gaslighting is and begin to recognize it. We can start seeing it in the way that newscasters present the news, in the way politicians present their positions. And then we start seeing it closer to home in the way our religious leaders may present information or our community <laughs> leader or uh, <laughs> our, our close relatives or we ourselves participate in that sort of thing. But we wouldn't have known how to even articulate it. If we hadn't been through this, we wouldn't have slowed down to be able to see, oh, that's what it looks like to be abusive. So you have to slow down enough to see it. And then you start building skills and we're building skills in isolating ourselves and responding to wacko situations. I mean, Texas just went through another front porch experience to climate change that's what we're, we're building skills for dealing with what's coming mm-hmm. in our direction. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, we just can't overemphasize enough is when Mary talks about the separation myth, that is how we live our lives. Most of us, most of the time. And well, how did that become so entrenched? Well, Mary talked about the individual development of the, of, of the human being, but we have institutional separation myth. It started, to be honest, way back in, in the days of Socrates, but certainly in, in Descartes and uh, Newton and in, in that sort of early scientific time, which was wonderful. It cultivated a way of seeing, a way of determining some aspect of truth called subject-object thinking. So the idea as a scientist was to isolate whatever it was you wanted to study, disconnect it from every other thing that influenced it and disconnect it from you. So you become the observer. It becomes the object that that's very useful. And we've we've developed all kinds of cool things because of it. But it's not the truth. It's not the whole truth. It's just a little slice that allows us to manage and control Mm. some aspects of life for our own well-being. But that became so fashionable to think in those terms that by the 17 and 1800s, almost every institution and still to this day, whether it's government or education or healthcare, tends to have that sort of subject object um, thinking. And and at its worst, it's what allows us to objectify people of, of color, people who have uh, different... Uh, we as white people, you and I. Right. Different yeah. religious beliefs. I mean, we, we can objectify uh, uh, things, women being objectified for, right. for really thousands of years is, is made possible by us thinking that, you know, th- this is the way the universe works. But in fact, there's this porous uh, rhythm of exchange, uh, one philosopher called it. It's a rhythm of exchange. There's not anything, there's not any such thing in the natural world as a rugged individual. You will never, ever ever find a rugged individual. We only exist in community. Hmm. Yeah. The addiction level of, uh, regarding separation, regarding how we, uh, our habitual patterns of, uh, recoiling from anything that is at all unexpected, unannounced, uncertain, and you know we're all doing this all the time, yeah. and um, yeah. why it is so important to engage with some kind of mindfulness practice, really, mm-hmm. so that we can see this. And and uh, and you're talking about much of what has been you know, gigantic disruptors are. Uh, we should look at it to our advantage because it is turning people back inside themselves to find the place that they are not separate. And, uh, of course, psychedelics have done a lot. In fact, uh, I I love the work that's going on. The people like Rick Doblin are doing with maps and actually getting uh, this change so that we can work with with ethnogens because that is one powerful way of understanding the interconnectivity of everything. 
Yes, and part yes. of the benefit um, is that it does chemically what we are all invited to do anyway, and that is to stop. Yeah. Yeah. I love that in the book, by the way. Stop. <laughs> Just stop. Yeah. Well, and you yeah. know, that's a real paradoxical thing. Yeah. Right. Yes. Because one of the things that happens with people when they're brought up next to isolation or next to themselves, um, through some kind of crisis or great loss. And certainly we've had ugh, our fair share of those in this past year and this past four years. But one of the things that happens is this feeling of, oh, no, I have to avoid that. But I have to say that when I, I have found in myself and I've had people that we work with and that I've worked with for years, say to me that there's this paradoxical moment when you hear someone say, just stop. Where there's this like peacefulness that comes just even for a bare moment into experience before the resistance shows up. And that is that, it's that gap in which we have the possibility to remember really who we are, but it's not a toggle switch and our everyday experiences aren't going to go away. We have a bad, bad habit in the separation myth of jumping to action. Those of us with big hearts, let's say people with big hearts see something wrong and they want to jump and do something about it. Climate change is perfect. And if we can't, if we can't see a thing to do, we get caught, we get paralyzed, we get furious, and that's what we end up doing. And what we're suggesting is that instead of the impulsive jump to do something, assess it a little bit. Stop. Who are you really? What do you really want? And this is not new. Gary and I are just putting language on this to bring people's attention through the natural world. You know, what you're saying reminds me of this wonderful line by Lao Tzu that says that uh, because clarity and enlightenment are within your nature, regaining them requires that you move not an inch. And so that stopping mm-hmm. kind of always brings that, yeah. that thought yeah, to, no, to my mind. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just part of the whole be here now thing, you know, being yeah. stop. You have to stop to be in the presence of the moment. Yes. And exactly. So that's, yeah, that's just an obvious thing. Well, uh, and I think that, you know, if I may, the, the rippling out of, of what Gary and I have come to call inner elderhood, the rippling out uh, of our um, essential orientation to kindness and connection is so profound. I never had the opportunity, and I don't think you did either, to be in the presence of Ram Das, for example. I never had the opportunity to be in the presence of Neem Karoli Baba, on and on and on and on. But you know, I know, I can, I have no doubt that the rippling out of this is beyond anything that any of us can imagine. And there is a way that through um, through our kinship that we are sharing this with each other, whether in the form of those folks or not. And that is what I've heard called a quickening. That to me is part of why we've gotten things that are so ugly because there is this quickening in human consciousness. I'm counting on it. I see it. <laughs> okay. I like it. <laughs> I think it's real as well. Uh, even though I, I'm one of the first people to go woohoo on on stuff, but yeah. at the same time, the you, know, you get to the point, and I've said this a billion times, uh, just repeating something Ramdas said in this movie, "Becoming Nobody," that we did. When is what you want enough? When is what you need enough? It's much more interested, interesting to serve people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. once you, and you only get that um, 
after you start to experience the fact that you do much of what you're talking about in this book, stop, realize the kind of connectivity that we have with everything around us and most particularly just walk out in nature and you will get it immediately. And then that transfers into a little tiny seed that will burst forth it will. It just will. It's our natural progression to burst forth into loving kindness, period, and loving awareness that Ram Dass talked about. And, and once, once you're there, then you, you can only start to think of doing uh, – talking certainly about in our environment. You can only start to, to think, as you say in the book as well. Start to look around. See what's really happening. What are you doing? What's your relationship to it? And then be able to move from there. But none of that can happen until you – until we, not you. We fully understand how we are so interconnected. We had a thought, you know, in this, the, the, when I was a kid in the late 60s, uh, to put acid in the waterworks kind of thing. Remember that? Yes, Maybe it was yes. a good idea. It's just uh, <laughs> everybody would get it then, right? Yeah. Everybody would get it. I'll tell you, my, my mother, who was, uh, had uh, problems with depression, we were from Montreal, and she was in, um, she, she was in an institution where they were going to give her shock, you know, all that horror that they did in the, mm -hmm. when it must have been in the 50s or something. And the CIA was doing secret acid experimentations in Canada at this institution, which was associated with McGill University, the most prestigious school in the east of Canada. So she, she was one of them. They gave her acid. She had no idea of anything. And I said, "What? well, what happened, Mom? And she's, oh, no, I felt great. I just felt part of everything. <laughs> like, Fantastic. it works. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I'm going to get hit for you know my advocacy here, but uh, it, it's real, and uh, it happened to me, and uh, I can't tell you how many other people, but just the uh, the opening that can come around how we are all one, <laughs> we yes. are, uh, is profound, and it doesn't need an ethnogen in particular. It does require, and you do get, an experience one way or the other, through a piece of music, through reading something, meeting somebody, and in my case, obviously going to India and meeting that being but everybody has an ineffable experience, and that trusting that is makes a huge change. Sorry, I just I, I went think off. We, we find things when you told that story about your mom, which is great. Uh, it, to break the frame, we all build these frames around what we think the world consists of, and and life progresses, and elderhood comes on to the degree we can keep breaking those frames and make them bigger, make them more inclusive, and that can happen as it did for your mom. Uh, through, through that experimental trial, or it can happen from all the other things that you suggest. Yeah, one of the things that, that is fun to do is to watch really small children and how they get captivated by things out in the natural world. They get captivated by things indoors as well. But just watch that captivation mm. because the, I can, and I'm far from being a little kiddo, I can just <laughs> get blown out by looking at these three trees outside our window right now. I mean, what elegance and what flawless elegance. And even the parts that aren't working so well are working perfectly fine for now. And those trees are connected with each other and they're connected with trees farther away. And they're not fussed about doing it right or doing it wrong. And I am connected with them. I mean, it does get to sound woo-woo, but our invitation, for example, with the stop, is stop and check. Is there anything that you're not connected to? Just yeah, check. Right. right. You know, <laughs> and if nothing else, keep yourself entertained for five minutes with that. Your neurons are restructuring, you know, mm -hmm. are building new pathways, and that's only good news. And if you need left brain support for all this, which I often do, I must admit. Look at the biology, look at the ecology, look at what we now know is happening. Just Mary mentioned trees. 
connected by these underground fungal networks, passing on food to saplings that need it, passing on carbon, even sharing uh, uh compounds, molecular compounds that allow a tree to express a resistance to insect invasion, right. you know, they're, they're, and, and on and on and on it goes. All the trillions of bacteria that are living in our gut that weren't with us when we were born that actually break down what's in food, the minerals and various vitamin elements to make it available to our brains or muscles. Yeah. Um, the melatonin getting set by the sunlight every day. I mean, there, it's just where one of the questions we love to ask is, um, yeah, is, is, is this this skin uh, question that that Mary was talking about? Do you really end at the edge of your skin? And so just take it as a mm. intellectual. It's uh, a good con, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is for sure. Mm. Yes, it is. Mm. So one thing. uh you say, if we're to move forward in the face of climate change, a challenge we created, if we wish to give our energy to relief and repair, we must grieve. Yes. I think we need to talk about, you guys need to talk about that, because that's not something, I mean, people do grieve. I, you know, I've been in situations where you see things in, uh, in nature and I don't mean deep nature, you know, for me, it was the thing I'm thinking about was in the foothills of the Himalayas. And I was on my way actually to Kenshi, this, the ashram that we went to, to see Neem Karoli Baba a lot up in that area. And this is more recently, in the last 10 years. Um, and you see trucks uh, line, uh, not lining up, but you'll see a couple of trucks backing into um, the edge of a road, a steep cliff, and dumping garbage. I mean, right, I'm talking in the most pristine forests and places of beauty uh, and holy. I mean, just, and this is happening. And, you know, I'm driving by, and you just have the worst sinking feeling possible. They don't have any garbage disposal. I mean, of course, I mean, I'm sure you know, the there is no infrastructure in India. It is just uh, free for all. Uh, <clears throat> it's nuts. Anyhow, that talk about grief, because I did have that in that moment. I understand what you're saying. And I think it's got to be a motivating factor for people because it's happening absolutely everywhere. Just go, go down to the ocean. Mm. Go to the beach. Yes, definitely. So there is the grieving, but there's also the um, righteous indignation. So, and and I'm not saying that the, I wouldn't recommend righteous indignation no, no. because that's a way of separating. Yeah. And the grieving is a way of grieving how it is that we as people ever considered, for example, in the example you're giving, how we ever considered that there was in a way that we could throw things to. Yeah. We had to think from a separate standpoint in order to do that in the first place. And so here we are. This is what's happening. How do we grieve that this is the case and hold that at the same time? In fact, without holding it at the same time, we slow down our capacity. We inhibit our capacity to be responsive. So we have to open up and hold things more lightly which is much easier said than done. But one of the things that helps that happen is looking outside, looking in springtime. There's a promise that it's going to come this year too. I heard that. It's going to come. <laughs> and when it does, we will see the daffodils, we will see the tulips, and we will see them wither. Things that come in the spring wither and die. There is a capacity in our nature to hold this process. Gary was telling me that we, it, it's not so much about grief, but could be that our, we now know that our atoms, the atoms that make up your body, the atoms that make up my change every year, you got new atoms. <laughs> so be careful what yeah. you're eating and drinking yeah, oh and thinking about because you're setting up your atoms for your next year. You know, yeah. there's something else that comes to my mind talking about grief like this. Um, 
about 35 years ago, I had this wonderful opportunity. I was invited by Crown Publishers in New York to write this book about um, nature myths, basically. Quick, easy to digest nature stories from cultures all over the world. And so I spent lots of time listening to tapes made by anthropologists and talking to storytellers and going into research libraries. And I probably went through 14 or 1500 stories. And as I did, by the time I got to about 300, I realized that they were all holding as essential qualities for living well in the world. If you wanted to make that the theme, they were all suggesting that one or more of three things were essential to live well in the world. The first was to have an active relationship with beauty. The second was to honor and participate in community. And the third was to make a place in your life for mystery. So beauty, community, and mystery allowing you to not only live well, but a lot of indigenous people um, would, would say to move through the hard times. When my first wife, Jane, after 25 years, died in a canoeing accident uh, in uh, 2005, she asked me to go scatter her ashes in her five favorite wilderness areas. I went knowing about those three qualities. And so I intended and was successful to some great degree to turn the wheel of grief, to move through it in, in, in sort of an exquisite way by virtue of going out into these wilderness places to scatter her ashes and being very alert and attentive to beauty and community and mystery. So I think we can make it through grief and we can come out wiser and more compassionate and more loving on the other side. We don't really have the option to not go through it. I mean, we, we do, but the, but what are the consequences of, of stifling yeah. grief? Well, uh, we're stuck. Yeah. We see the consequences all around us. You know, that's what we've been living with. We've been called to look at so closely these past few years. Well, you just take the you know, these situation. Mine is some silly little thing. It's not that silly because of what's really happening there. But uh, we have all bumped into in nature uh, many experiences that give us pause and cause us to have, if not a full blown blown grief moment, uh, certainly enough of something that constitutes some real suffering. So that that's just uh that's going to happen it is happening and then it's a matter of how do we how do we approach uh no, the the big thing for me is not allowing a coldness to happen where you're mm. just you absolutely you've rationalized it down so that you do not have to have this, this enter into your being, into your consciousness mm -hmm. in a way that it's defensive posture. It's all about separation. Mm -hmm. It's all about what, we're, what we've been talking about here. Right. And so that's, that's, to me, the most important. Don't become cold because mm -hmm. there's so much of it. And, mm -hmm. and it's our natural defense mechanism. That's mm -hmm. what I would. Well said. Well said. It surely is. And the, it, in the end, because we have these frontal lobes and these experiences of being separate, each of us gets to choose. Each of us gets to choose if we want to risk. Sometimes for some people, it feels like if they risk admitting to themselves that they are absolutely connected, They'll die. And you know, the I have said to my students, I, I love what the, I understand the Sufi said 4,000 years ago is, which is you're very lucky, lucky, lucky if you die before you die. Mm -hmm. yes, well, what a yes. wacky, what in the world? What does mm -hmm. that mean? Mm -hmm. And for me, it is those, those, this is going to sound out there, but people just need to check it out. Those trees out there are dying to every moment because they're not thinking about the next moment and they're not thinking about the last moment. When I got to do some work in the Federal Corrections Institution in Sheridan, Oregon, for four years, I got to meet up with inmates who were there because they were very they were gurus they were they were amazing they knew that they were in that place with themselves and that they could either use it as a monastery or they could continue living their lives the way they always had well one of them came up with what we came to call the marty maxim and he said if i am rehearsing or rehashing then i'm not here 
And this mm. is where mm. I am. So Marty wasn't 100% successful. I'm not 100% successful, but the tree is. I stand to learn a lot from that tree, mm. from being right in this moment, which includes grief, calls us to what we love. We feel grief. Think of how broken your heart is with Ram Das being gone. I mean, I think of my losses. I think of Gary's losses. Ah, and we hurt so much because we love beyond anything we can put words on. I think Mary brings up a great point that grief is evidence of love. It's evidence yeah, of right, relationship. Right, yeah. It's le- evidence of compassion and caring. And without those, there would be no grief. But what a price, what a price to pay. Mm-hmm. But, and, and there would be no human nature. Yeah. Our human nature is that connection. Yeah. And uh, don't forget another thing that you do speak of and that we speak of all the time. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Uh, okay. It is yes. okay. And that's another thing. Uh, again, we, we're uncontrollably, we grieve in the moment. And then after a whole set of mental BS goes on, and then we create these conditions that allow us to step back and not have to really feel that again mm-hmm. because of discomfort. And it's so right. that's why uh, it's, it's okay. To, it's okay to be uh, uncomfortable. And when you can get that kind of spaciousness, none of this comes in my mind, guys, without practice. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I reiterate yeah. this on as many mind rolling podcasts as I've done and I do. Uh, it takes that some kind of mindfulness practice, some meditation practice, some uh, perspective practice, even, you know, where you start to see that you are not uh, that controlling thought. You are not that thought and uh, come from what Ram Dass called loving awareness, which is a, that space in the in the middle of our chest, which is... Uh, otherwise called soul or no mind, Buddha mind, whatever. It's got all these wonderful names. So, yeah, until that happens. You're so right, uh, Raghu, and that practice among so many things gives us an opportunity to learn to gain the ability or to remember, I'm not sure which, that we can hold all of these things at once. So I think we're often afraid of grief because we're afraid it will consume us or it will destroy us. But yeah. in, in fact, alongside of grief, there is always spring. There is joy. There is uh, upwelling of life. There are, there are yeah. all these things going on simultaneously. So just to cultivate the ability to see holistically in that way through practice yeah. uh, is, is so Big powerful. deal. Big and deal. the grief makes the beauty more evident and more accessible. Yeah, and yes. that's just that is that's just a bunch of words. But people who have been in grief and have lived with grief and allowed themselves to be in it, not go cold, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. those folks know that the the aspects of beauty, what you can see, is so much greater. One of the things that we're oriented towards, largely through the separation myth, too, is that we we all know this from the past four years, we pay a lot more attention to what's not working. We are so drawn to what's not working. We make headlines about it. We do 24 seven news. We just like to say that's not working. And in relationships, what's not working and what's not working on the TV and what's not, you know, but we forget to realize that a whole lot is working all the time or we couldn't complain. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. You're saying I, you're right. I don't know what in the hell I would do. I mean, people come my, you know, this is my work style is why aren't you telling people, give the positive reinforcement of what they're doing. Great. What are you just pointing out all the things that aren't working, you know, and how many of us do that? That's right. That's yeah. right. It's unbelievable. Hey, you know, and so that's uh, its own practice then. Yep. That's its own. To practice. slow down and say, "Yep, this isn't stop, working right now." Stop. Yeah, stop. Exactly. Stop, exactly. Stop. Be uncomfortable. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and don't get cold. Um, no. Great to have you guys here. We're at the end of our our podcast yeah. hour here, and uh, I'm I'm so happy this finally happened. And yes. it's been a pleasure. Thank you. So yeah, much. really great to spend this time. Yeah.
I don't yeah. know, Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson. And I don't even think I mentioned your last names when I introduced, that's how bad a host I am. Guys, <laughs> everybody, the this book, when is the book coming out, by the way? Earth Day. Oh, Earth fabulous. Day. So plenty so of time. But April there must 22nd. be. I'm sure there's a pre-order process going on as well. You can go. We're going to have all of the links and you guys will give. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. Full Ecology. Um, and we'll have links to uh, pre-order the book and then order the book and uh, just uh, get familiar with uh, Mary and Gary's work, which is great. Uh, and you all can. Can we give a website? Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's it, that www thing dot dot com, www dot com. And the other thing is that we're going to have a launch event, a ticketed virtual oh, launch event cool. on Earth Day, and the host is going to be Sister Helen Prejean. Oh one really? Of the, oh wow! Well, yeah, yes, one no, of, of course the people who yes. endorsed that book. Oh, so, wonderful! Yeah, so that's really. <laughs> So that'll all be there and all be available and connecting up to these guys' work. And uh, you'll look in the show notes. Uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling and go to BeHereNowNetwork. And uh, we have a new podcast that I need to tell everybody about, Mirabai Bush, Walking Each Other Home. She wrote this fantastic book with Ramdas, and uh, uh, it really if you really want to feel what it was like uh, being with Ramdas in his latter years before he died, this book does it. It's incredible. So she's got a podcast and is, uh, who did she talk to? Listen to this. John Densmore, the Doors drummer. John is a great guy and he's totally wrote a beautiful book that just uh, showcases all these great people that he's had, been in touch with over these many years, including Ramdas. So, uh, yeah, they have a great conversation. So, Mirabai Bush, walking each other home. Mary, Gary, thank you so much. We'll see you all next time. All right. Mind Be well. Be, uh, see you guys Bye too. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 